From the Ron McKeefery Podcast Network, I'm Isaiah Castilleja, and this is Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0. In this very special episode of Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0, Coach Joe Ken and Coach Peter Ken talk to us about the value of how much you can learn by coaching multiple sports at the D2 level and 1AA level. Also, there's this discussion on what it's like trying to work your way up the ladder in the current state of our profession and how to manage that and how to understand our job as a business transaction while working in our profession. This is a must listen to episode of Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0. Team Builder is the premier strength and conditioning app for teams and private facilities. Used by more than 2,500 organizations around the world, performance coaches can write training programs online for athletes to access on their mobile app or on tablets in the weight room. You can even print individualized workout cards of your programs directly from their systems. Right now, when you start a 14-day trial, use promo code CHALK, that is promo code C-H-A-L-K, to access more than 70 strength and conditioning programs directly in your Team Builder account, including four sports science questionnaire templates. Today, coaches from around the country use Team Builder's built-in questionnaire module to create COVID-19 pre-screening questionnaires sent to athletes daily. We've been using Team Builder at MSU Denver for several years now and cannot recommend them enough. Hewitt and his staff go above and beyond to help create an outstanding user experience for all the teams they work with. I have yet to run into a type of periodization or programming format that the staff at Team Builder cannot tackle and create. From asking around, it is clear more college and high school strength coaches use Team Builder more than any other training program available. Go to teambuilder.com and check them out. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0. Today, I am joined by both Coach Joe Big House Ken and Coach Peter Ken. Coach Joe Ken is currently the Vice President of Performance Education at Dynamic Fitness and Strength. Prior to that, he was the head strength and conditioning coach at the Carolina Panthers. He also had stops at the University of Louisville, Arizona State, University of Utah, Boise State, Wake Forest, and Pinecrest School. He's been the NFL Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year in 2015. He's been the NSCA Collegiate Coach of the Year, the NSCA Professional Coach of the Year, Mountain West and Big West NSCA Coach of the Year. He is an MSCC with the CSCCA, and he holds distinction and emeritus status with numerous certifications at the NSCA. And Coach Peter Ken just finished up being an elite track and field thrower at Iowa State and Appalachian State. He's also served as a strength conditioning intern for Olympic sports at Iowa State. And he's also had stops at Big House Power, Appalachian State, Performance Course, Wake Forest, and the Carolina Panthers. Coaches, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Definitely. And uh, Coach Joe Ken, if you don't mind, if we get you started with you, could you tell us a little bit about your role at Dynamic Fitness and Strength? And then Coach Peter Ken will, will do you afterward as well. So after 32 years on the platform and on the floor, I've transitioned over to a different realm of the fitness and 
coaching genre. And I'm now the vice president of performance education at Dynamic Fitness and Strength out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, that role serves a dual purpose. I serve as an ambassador to the company to recognize and promote the ownership, Kurt and Tammy Tambernino, and what we've accomplished at Dynamic from a fitness equipment manufacture and fabrication program, and also to help promote coaching education through our various forms of media that we're doing right now, whether it's our 60 second strength coach blog, our coaching academy, and our dynamic discussions. Obviously, one of my biggest roles now that we're live again is to represent dynamic at events, uh, put a face to the company to help us promote and market ourselves as a strong leader in the field of strength and equipment design and manufacturing. Definitely. Go ahead, Coach Peter. Uh, so currently, I'm an Olympic strength and conditioning intern at the University of Iowa State. I uh, worked with quite a few teams since I've been here from softball, volleyball, uh, swimming and diving, men's golf, and I touched with soccer for a little bit. Um, so I've been here since I started, uh, got here in August, started my role as an intern in September and, have, and kind of been working with them pretty directly and currently uh, through this time period. Obviously, you know, with track and field and uh, getting my second master's, which a little bit of an interesting financial decision there. But um, yeah, so full-time student athlete, work part-time as well. Uh, but I've also, you know, interned at a few different places, uh, universities along the way. I'm fortunate enough to have obviously really great connections in this industry and uh, happy that I knew I wanted to do early so I could go ahead and pursue those dreams. Awesome. Now, now you know, Coach Peter, how much did your father's career like impact you and your choice to follow in the profession? Uh, I think from a lot of different ways, it had a few different impacts. Um, you know, growing up, obviously, around weight rooms, <laughs> some kids might have less of an affinity towards that. Um, if you've been Kind of always around the game, knowing how it goes, training constantly, especially as you know, a, a high school athlete, college athlete. Um, as my dad's spoken about before, you know, learning when to not be a coach, when to be a coach in a lot of different ways. So uh, I was fortunate enough to slowly fall in love with it over the years of high school, especially as I began my own athletic performance and, and started to take that to a little bit of a higher level. Uh, and then Right before I went into my freshman year, I decided, you know, I loved it enough to the point where I wanted to pursue it. Uh, Appalachian State University has a wonderful program. Dr. Travis Triplett, who was a great mentor for me there, um, former president of the NSA, she, she might still be. Um, but yeah, I, it was all perfect. Kind of all the worlds collided at the right moment. Um, you know, it, I get the question all the time. What was it like being a son of a coach? But for me, it was a lot different than a lot of other people. And uh, at the end of the day, it wasn't too traumatizing because I still want to do it. So uh, hopefully, you know, when I have my own kids, my own, I'll be able to explain things to them a little bit better just because I have that knowledge. But yeah, it's, it's been a great ride. And uh, out of all the things I've ever had to say about it is I had a lot of benefits because of it and things that I, I believe in my journey, whether I would have decided to be a strength coach or not, were made me a better person. And I think 
I owe it to my kids that allow them the same opportunities that I was provided because of what my family sacrificed for me and my brother. No, absolutely. That's great. And, and Coach Joe, Ken, you know, what is it like to see one of your kids following your footsteps? Well, it's like, I think it, for any parent, it's, first it was surprising, right? Uh, you see, you see the lack of your dad being at home, sometimes over committing to someone else's kids uh, for the, you know, cause you've got to be all in where you're at. And so I was actually quite surprised when he said, I want to be a strength coach. I go, where did that even come from? I thought he was going to do politics and stuff. He was into all the student government, you know, proposing bills in front of thousands of uh, peers at state clinics and, and, you know, and he was, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't stop him when he said, well, why wouldn't I? I've got a built-in network already. And I'm, here's a 17-year-old kid already understanding the game. And, and it worked out well because uh, his mom's up here with me. But, you know, we, we were going through that decision where, where we were talking a lot about what do you think he's going to go to college? You know, what do you, you think is going to happen? And once he chose – and he came to us and said, I want to be a strength and conditioning coach. The obvious choice for him to go to school was Appalachian State on the schools that he had got accepted to. He actually did get accepted to East Tennessee State and got a pretty decent, if I remember right, financial package, which wouldn't have been a bad deal there studying under Mike Stone. But the sports came into play, and the fact that he was able and granted a walk-on opportunity at app, but he definitely wanted to pursue a collegiate athletic career. And I think we'd all agree that's a, a unhidden, it's a unwritten factor of success moving forward in coaching. The higher levels of sport that you have accomplished as an athlete generally hold some significance when reviewing resumes. Uh, let's, just, let's just be honest. A, 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 an, ath, a, an applicant with athletics background in college versus someone who doesn't is going to be looked at in some people's minds slightly ahead of somebody who doesn't just because they understand what those kids are going through. So, so it was, it was an interesting choice too, because I, my impact in both my sons from a coach slash dad relationship was much different more way more overly over uh zealousness probably would be a good word to use with my with my oldest uh, helping him try to accomplish his goals and then pretty much backing off tremendously with peter and one of the reasons why it kind of felt it came it, it was fortunate for me when i took the panther job peter stayed in clemens while i lived in charlotte so he was pretty much teaching himself how to train. And then we were fortunate to get him with Travis Mash and Travis helped him through his high school career. And then I helped when I could. And I, and I think, I don't know what would have happened if I was home every day with Pete when it came to that compared to what I learned. I think I learned a lot from my mom, from his mom and what occurred with my son, my son, Joe. Now a lot of positives happened. But as you all know, the, the two to three to four negatives always outweigh the hundreds of positives that you've accomplished 
working with your with your own kids. So it's very, very challenging. And that's why I tell people, and we talked about it off air, that if there's one thing I learned and I would give a, a testimony or a testament to all coaches is remember, as much as you want to be involved with your child's development, if they get into athletics, it's crucial that you understand they will have, you know, multiple coaches throughout their athletic career and they only have one mom or dad. So be very, very aware. You know how we talk about as coaches, that fine line between coach-athlete relationship? Well, there's even a finer line between being a coach and a parent. And when you get more motivated sometimes than the child, as we've seen it in what, what, my, what me and my wife call ego-bred society where the parents' ego gets caught up instead of what the athlete actually wants to accomplish or the child really, why is the child in sport? Because the parent wants him to be. So it's a, it's a very, very fine line. And I learned a valuable lesson with a couple of heated arguments with my wife and Peter's mom and my oldest. And I, uh, it's a, it's tough. It's tough when you hear certain things that I heard, but I learned enough to know that I had to do something different. And it would have been, uh, I, I would have liked to have been around more for Peter during high school. I mean, I lived away five or six, seven days a week for his entire college and high school career uh, coming home on weekends. But he has definitely grown uh, probably a better maturity for that and has made has had to make some tough decisions even early on in his life uh, when it came to sporting, sporting opportunities and things like that. So it, you, you take the good and the bad. And, and, you know, obviously all the kudos goes to his mom for raising both of my kids because uh, as a coach, again, uh, at the era I came up is a lot different. I think uh, as I've watched the genre, if I've watched the evolution of coaches and their capabilities and what their true understanding is, although it's still a, it's a time-consuming job, I have noticed that most coaches are tr are doing a better job of finding that family balance with job much better than the the generation before me and my generation of coaches. Absolutely, and you know, Coach Peter, after listening to what you, what your dad just said, and after what you just said, how much his career kind of impacted you, you. You said you knew you had a you had that network built in and everything. What is where do you see it as being like? And when I say young coach, it's not age, it's just young in the profession. Like, what's your perspective on our profession from where you're at now? I think, from my perspective, right? And this is obviously the naive young guy coming out of me a little bit, and I'm not afraid to admit that. I look at coaching the same way as I perceive what I would imagine coaches deem their athletic talent on a team. If you're going to play the best athletes, you have to give the best coaches an opportunity to play. And I'm not suggesting that every new young coach has every answer in the book or that I have every answer in the book, because quite frankly, as we've, as we've said, I just don't have the time in there yet to know every answer. I've had a lot of other opportunities where I've gotten a lot of leeway, worked with 500 athletes in a day, things like that, where you start to accumulate those answers. Um, but I think, you know, you see a football team and they're going to play a guy off potential because of what he might be able to bring to a program. But I don't see that a lot happening 
in the coaching realm. And for obvious reasons, you know, there's, there's security issues in terms of does a guy know how to manipulate a program? So a, a player doesn't get hurt or whatever it may be in that kind of situation. So I get it. Um, but I think there's this constant, uh, circular loop of you need two years of experience. Well, this is like about as entry of a level position as it gets. I don't know where else I'm supposed to get the experience from to start climbing that ladder. And not everyone does it. There's, there's many applications that I've turned in recently where, you know, that experience level is, um, maybe negated altogether on the application process, but we all know it is a decision that comes into play. And I think at the end of the day, you have to look at the talent pool of what you're given, obviously the education levels of where someone's coming from, but also their experience as a person to deem, you know, if this young kid is going to be a better coach than someone who's been in the game for 10 years. And we, I think we all know someone who has been coaching for a long time, who frankly just doesn't, understand or truly get the value of what their position is versus someone who may only have a coaching age of six months to two years as an intern who truly understands and gets the profession and and may be more valuable to a system as their potential would, would offer more to the program. So that's where I see it right now, obviously with the connections discussion and, you know, not to brag or be cocky about it, it's just a situation at hand where because of who my father is and because of who he's made solid connections with over the years and the people I've been introduced to, I just know more names. And that, frankly, it hasn't proven to be a major step. So it's going to help me a lot down the line, but obviously entering in, if there's no positions, there's no positions. And with the pandemic, you know, cutting back on uh, percentages of salaries as well as releasing other positions as well. There's a lot of guys with a lot of talent out there who have five, 10 years of experience who are still looking for positions. So it's an interesting, tough time, especially with the way, you know, the pandemic pandemic has shifted funding through athletic departments and, and, you know, some ADs are hesitant and how they're going to write contracts from, you know, this point forward. So I'm excited for the journey. I've been a part of it for a long time, so it doesn't scare me. Obviously I've been, I've been working pretty hard, uh, interning when I can and working when I can since 2017. So I'm, I'm here to stay. I got a lot to prove myself and I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to ride on coattails. I'm trying to make my own. No, I think that that's, that's clutch, man. I, I, you could easily name drop him, but you're like, Hey, I'm willing to get in there, grind, work it out. And then my dad's not even on my resume. So, I mean, <laughs> If, if somebody looks at your resume and sees your last name and doesn't even try to put two and two together, they're, they're blind. But, uh, but also I think it's good to also mention you doing all this while being an elite athlete. Like I, I know the profession's tough enough as just being a, a coach, just all you're doing is coaching, but you got to throw in the fact that you're competing. I mean, you just get got done with the big 12 like championships. Like that's yeah, pretty, pretty big deal. And as it shows how committed you are to the profession and how much you're, you know, willing to work now, now coach Joe, Ken, what is your thoughts on the industry as a whole right now? And especially having your son essentially working his way up through the, like the grind part of our career where we're all trying to make a name for ourselves. What, what is your perspective on it now? Yeah, it's changed for sure. And I don't know if it's changing for the better, the worse, or 
somewhere in between. I think as strength and conditioning coaches, at one point we were we were the go-to because of our role was uh, multi-purpose, <laughs> multifaceted, and we're losing our voice. And I won't go into that too much this conversation, but things are changing. When when we were the one-headed monster, but needed to know four disciplines with some type of competency, whether it be nutrition, uh, reconditioning, and, and things of that matter. Now, in this era of the of the true specialist, even the sport-specific strength coach era, of every coach would love to have a strength coach just for their sport. And if, the, and if it was financially feasible for athletic departments, that could be the way it goes. So we've got everybody answering questions for us, and we don't have anybody helping us let people understand what our role truly is. And that's that's disturbing. Uh, I see it all the time. You see it a lot at professional sports, how we are uh, very rarely heard as a profession. And it's it's our own fault. You know, no one wants to say that. So from that standpoint, we have to do a better better job of whether it's people – like myself, stepping to the plate and getting more involved in administrative roles like uh, Bob Alejo, the Pat Ivies, and, and those positions are starting to pop up where they've got a place at the top floor and they can help educate the other administrators on what we really do. How many times have we all talked about that who's evaluating us, right? Yeah, the coach is evaluating us, but he should be most of the time or she should depending on what sport we're coaching now in the, in this era, the coach is hiring people. It's not the administrating it. It's not the administrators anymore. And, and the role now for people coming up, uh, I've said this, and I've talked about this in May at the CSCCA. I'll bring this up at the NSCA when I speak later in July. When we talk about ourselves as mentors, like yourself, you've been in it a long time. I'm sure you've had people underneath you that consider you a mentor. Uh, I've had the same situation. I've had numerous people prosper under the things that we believed in as a staff and the things that I believed in individually that I was able to promote to a staff and let them understand the belief system. But what we have to remember is, and like Peter was talking about with some of the jobs, at, at major college athletics, I call it death of the GA. <laughs> Because the GA position was a huge way for us to excel as coaches and in, increase our academic stature and our ac academic vita. But we, we were offered graduate assistantships where that paid for us to go to school and gave us a stipend to accomplish a degree that everybody still wants us to have. You know, you get, hey, you, we have an entry-level job that pays $20,000, master's preferred. Well, this day and age, what we have to remember as, as head coaches and administrators are the opportunities for these young coaches coming up to achieve a master's degree without going in debt and still trying to find, like Peter was saying, that two years of experience to get a job is, is, is heartfelt because everybody wants to be D1. Let's just face it, right? That's everybody's chase. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but that's like the chase, right? Be D1, be the big time. But you make the big time where you are. 
the 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 thing now is with the way these got way the way these kids are coming up, male or female, and they're getting into that mindset of the big time, the big time. I got to make the big bucks. The truth is, the value of the learning and the journey and the education now is at the Division two levels and some of the one AA levels who are still offering traditional based strength training programs where you have to work all the sports and there's GA opportunities for you to accomplish both at the same time. You cannot accomplish both at the same time now at the higher levels because everybody wants the full-time help. You got the five strength coaches just for football, which I call the lazy. I, I call it a lot of different rules, but there's no reason why five coaches should just be doing football and I'm a football guy. Because your fourth and fifth assistants are losing quality coaching time if they're not assisting with another sport. If you say you're a mentor and you're a football-only guy and you're two entry-level positions, you're not walking them over to make a relationship with Olympic sports and get them a sport under their belt to teach them how to coach, how to communicate with athletes, how to write a program, how to be the lead, how to talk to administrators how to talk to a head coach, how to deal with assistant coaches, you know, learning different movement patterns outside the sport. A lot of these football-only strength coaches are locking themselves in, whether they're male or female. If they're locking into a single sport too early in their career, they lose out on opportunities. If you're a football-only strength coach and you've been doing that for 10 years and you get fired, no Olympic program's hiring you. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot. It's a lot has changed. Uh, I, I always talk about it from the same thing. We talk about it as coaches, right? You'd love to have multi-sport athletes in adolescence because it does all these different things for them from a overall athleticism and competency and competition base. It's the same thing in our genre, strength coaching. I want strength coaches who coach multi, multiple sports because then I know that they put in the extra time and effort to understand the dynamics. I always felt the best when when I had my programming and we won one program, oversaw the entire department, especially at Arizona State and Utah and Boise State, but Boise State was a little different from the staff, staff situation. But at Arizona State in particular, the, the number one assistant for football usually did track and field. And the and the other one, the second assistant would do swimming and diving because they're the largest groups with the more with the most diverse different events. No different than coaching football with a lot of positions <laughs> and a lot of schematics. So you learn a lot about coaching large groups and developing plans that isn't a one shop, a one size fits all. And, and it's really it's really something that people need to discuss more with those younger sport specific strength coaches. Even if it's a, a basketball, I don't care what specific sport you're in. If you get in it too early and you don't have a diverse background, I think you're limiting yourself as a coach in numerous ways, not just the coaching on the floor aspects. It's all the different things that you need to understand about university life and administration. Like you said, uh, you picked up an MBA to understand business. I remember Andrea Hootie talking about she picked up an MBA to understand business so she can understand where all the money goes. Mm, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of different things that are going on. Now, that doesn't mean 
you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, the, that person. Oh, he's just a, he's just pissed off because he's fired. I I accept the fact that I have I've lost jobs. That's part of you sign up for winning. You sign up for team sports. You sign up for winning. If you don't win, then you lose. And if you lose, they're probably going to replace you. So it's not nothing about this. I said this when I had a job. This is just something that I believe the evolution of what we do. And if you're going to hold yourself as a mentor and as someone that people want to listen to, to hear the things that no one else wants to say, then I have to be the champion for what's really going on and to make some of the younger generation listen. Like if you listen, what I say makes sense. Whether you want to do it or not, that's your opinion. But I, I believe based off of the climb and the journey of most of the coaches that I've seen that have had utmost success, it just teaches you a lot. That There's nothing that can replace teaching four sports in the gym at the same time and you got to get them all done during football practice because you got to go you got to stretch the team run inside coach for sports and make sure you're done before practice is over because you got to condition the team that that's true learning what being a strength coach is now it's you got five guys walking out to the football field and standing around watching football practice and i played enough football i don't like watching (laughs) right Right. So it, it there's a lot of good things, right? The money's crazy. The money's crazy. Uh, you know, it's still very what's the best? It's it's skewed. Like the gap of division one coaching for the football only is still skewed. But you know, I think I looked the last time in two thousand and let's see, two thousand nine or two thousand ten, what two thousand nine was my last year of college coaching, I think there was six to eight coaches that made over $200,000 as strength and conditioning coaches. And I think the last thing I saw was uh, 35 were making over 300. No, that's TV money, but you sign up for winning and losing. You want to get paid all that money, don't cry when you get fired because you didn't lose, you lost too many games. And that's that's what we have to understand. You take the good with the bad. And even, but even the Olympic sports, you, you can see high-level directors of Olympic sports now at the right schools are making six figures and, and closing in on. Some of them are making over $200,000. There's a little bit more job security, if that's what you're looking for. And the fact of the matter is, a football person or not, I didn't sign up to be a strength coach to coach football. I could have easily have been a grass coach. But I thought that limited some of the things that I thought I was – good at as a leadership, large group leadership. I love the weight room. It just was too easy uh, being hurt my first two years of college and spending every day in the weight room rehab. And it just, you, it starts to, you know, this it, it, osmosis, right? It sinks into your blood and it was already in it. And it, and then it was like, Hey man, this guy's getting paid to watch me lift weights all day. Oh yeah, I might need to look into that. Yeah, no doubt. And shout out because I'm I've been a D two coach for almost a decade now, so big shout out to that. And I definitely know what it's like to be one of. At one point, I was only one coach in sixteen teams, and you you get really good at uh, infrastructure and and playing that training session. But uh, you know, you know, Coach Peter, having your dad tell it exactly how it is. How does that affect you in your current path? Because that's one thing we always appreciate about, you know, 
house is he's always just going to tell it how it is. And, and he nailed it on the head. It's just the where a, we're losing our voices and then B it's just the way there our industry is going right now. How do you plan on taking that all in and carving your own path? It's a good question. I think it comes down to, um, as we kind of alluded, I don't know if we were recording at this point, but you have to understand the history of where this profession came from and how we've evolved to make it to where we are now with the specialization that you are seeing across the uh, kind of coaching platform. And, you know, fortunately for me, because I have been around this and my dad has, has always been driven in getting me around a lot of different sports, I've uh, already accumulated a lot of different coaching aspects that have taught me a lot of different things and shout out to my guy, Gino Pierce down in Texas with performance course, given a lot of young guys opportunities. And like I said, I mean, that's truly 500 to 700 kids a day on the hour, run around, cut it, new team comes in working K through 12. Um, but I think it comes down to not only the generation before me, helping create those discussions, but the gen my generation caring. And in the age of social media, where it's all me, 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 and what can I do for me? I think obviously as you mature and, and if you're truly a good coach and you care about giving back, which I think is a large part of coaching in general as an educator, as you go through those years and you become wiser, you, you understand that aspect of giving back. And I think it's, I think it's going to take a lot, but obviously the younger generation has to learn that early and not only learn to receive harsh criticisms or, um, you know, whether it's compliments, whatever it may be from the older generation, but also be willing to give back to them uh, and, and understanding that the whole profession is switching. It's changing. It's becoming more scientific based. Technology is finally starting to catch up with what coaches have known for a long time. And it's becoming a much easier process to incorporate technology without taking 30 minutes of setup and breakdown within a weight room and things like that. And I think we have to take our knowledge of where we're at and help apply it to, you know, the generations before us, but also understand that they have so much to offer and giving back to us as well. And in, instead of forcing that way, right. Because with that lack of experience, there's often naivety and, you know, almost that sense of, I know everything, even though you, you don't. And I think we have to start, especially in the education system, pushing that it, you're not wise until you know, you don't know everything. And too many kids, I, I feel don't understand that process. I mean, I've been around young individuals who think they're the best coach in the world and they've never actually coached anyone on a the floor. They're just sitting at an internship all day, wiping down equipment. So it's, it's tough to break that ego, but I think it's something the younger generation has to do and not be afraid to voice up and give new ideas um, as we start transitioning to, you know, some schools are, are going through an entire healthcare rebuild where the strength and conditioning department is under the, the, student health center or whatever it may be in situations like that. So I think it's important to be able to evolve. As my dad says, you got to be the chameleon, but we have to take onus and on our own generation to be willing to accept harsh criticisms and also give harsh criticisms without fear of repercussions, even though there may be, I think that's the only way to help 
illuminate the profession and also drive it. But, you know, as social media has proven, um, a lot of people are going to get are going to get brand exposure, whether they were whether they deserve it or not. And it's going to be good for us regardless. I think CrossFit, even though there's a lot of discussions about whether they're training and how they're doing it um, is appropriate or not, it's it's illuminating the entire game for the general public. And I don't think there's anything but good that can come out of that from our sense. Um, I think there's a lot of hate on a lot of general training, especially for the, the normal population. But as health has become more and more of a priority for us over the last decade, as it hasn't been maybe decades prior, that that can only be good for not only our profession, but the entire community of those who are around athletic performance or human performance. We'll be right back. The GymWire Power Tool is the gold standard for measuring performance and implementing velocity-based training. The question isn't what does GymWire do, but what it doesn't do. You can perform velocity zones, jump testing, athlete profiling, predictive 1RM analysis, live leaderboards, asymmetry resting, fatigue monitoring, and so much more. Because of the versatility the system offers, coaches can rest assured they're getting the real value for their money. They are the gold standard for velocity-based training with an interface that is easy to follow and a team at GymAware that are always top-notch with their customers. For more information, head to the website gymaware.com or contact the GymAware team directly. For sure. And, and, and I want to kind of piggyback off this, Peter, was, you know, you were an athlete and a coach at the, at the same time. And I've had one intern under me before who was a baseball player while he was also interning. How does that play in your role and how you go about communicating with athletes? Because, you know, you you yourself, you're like, hey, I know this stuff works. It's going to help me be a better athlete but not all athletes think that way. So how, how is being an athlete while being a coach impact how you communicate with your athletes? At the collegiate level, it can be very difficult. You're 22 years old coaching 22 year olds. They don't care. Right. I'm a very big believer in, um, you know, respect is earned and I don't necessarily deserve your respect right off the bat. And I think a lot of my generation feels that way as well, which is quite different from the generations prior to us. Um, but for me, a lot of it came with the, the phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. I, when I walk onto a floor to coach, uh, I, I try and exude an extreme amount of confidence. And I think sometimes whether you say the right thing or not, if you exude a, a certain amount of confidence that the athletes are going to listen to you. And if you don't act like you're a form, uh, uh, rather a student athlete with them and that you're in a new position, that that I think – you know, a lot of times that has a lot of play in whether they're going to respect you and listen to the, your decisions. Um, I also think it depends on who your director is. Who are you under? What kind of leeway do you have in their system? I've had internships where you're a glorified janitor, right? You, you're there to watch. And like my dad said previously, you're there to learn through osmosis. They don't want you to have hands on. They want you to be the guy who's folding towels and cleaning things up. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, as my dad alluded to, that's part of the journey. But I've, I've been lucky enough to check that box off at an early time frame in my career to where now, because of where I've been and where I'm at now at Iowa State under uh, Coach Tim Dombrowski, 
who's the director of the Olympic department, uh, him understanding my background, he's given me a lot of leeway. And also I've executed on the details that he's wanted me to and expected of me to, as well as gone above in some, some circumstances that he can trust me. So it's not only about building trust between me and the athlete, but me and the coach that I am under and supervising me to allow me those freedoms. Um, you know, it's the funny story of my dad always back in the day, we used to give him a hard time about him making interns clean out of shaker bottles. And one day I finally asked him what the deal was. And he said, how can I trust him to coach a group of 20 kids if he can't clean out a bottle? Right. And from that point on, when he finally gave me the real reason, it clicked, it all made sense. And so for young coaches, you may be at a position where as an intern, where you have to sit for two weeks and watch and be the guy who doesn't get to do a whole lot, but you better know every kid's name on the team. Because if you can't even figure out their name in two weeks, it should really be a week. But if you can't figure out their name in two weeks, you're not coaching them. And I think that's how it should be. Because if I can't trust you to, to develop even the most rudimentary relationship with an athlete, you shouldn't be coaching them. And so that was a process that took a little bit for me to learn. The confidence slowly grows every time you walk onto the floor for a first time with new athletes. If you're not nervous, there's probably a problem in your enthusiasm and passion for the game. And uh, especially recently, I've been introduced to a lot of different teams because it's the summer. Um, in the spring semester, I work primarily with volleyball. But as the summers come along and there's five or six groups in the weight room at a time, you got to go. And I'm not going to mention any names, but I've worked with a couple athletes who are like, hey, thanks for actually knowing who we are. And um, that just reinforced that what I'm doing is on the right track. No, I'm not perfect, but I'll be damned if I'm not trying to be. And, and moral of the story, it's not just respect with the athletes, but you have to prove to yourself in those moments that you respect yourself. Cause if you wouldn't listen to you, they're not going to listen. No, to you. Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's strong stuff. And, uh, I've always, go ahead, coach. Yeah. <laughs> go for it. Let me just see how I put in Isaiah. So, <laughs> because I'm sure some of these guys are listening and some of these. Yeah, guys. let's go. Let's do so it, let yeah. me go back to the shaker bottle deal. Right. <laughs> right. One, you probably can't do that now, right? <laughs> With the way things are now, they'll probably post that on yes. social media and you'll, you'll get cremated. Well, there is some value to what he said, and and I'll, I'll continue to make the joke. I, I just believed everything was a test. It was no different than and, – and, and in that funny way of cleaning out a shaker bottle or cleaning something out that made no sense or – going to pick up lunch without messing up the lunch order was no different than when I was watching football coaches test GAs when they were going, hey, can you go pick up my dry cleaning? Hey, I need you to pick me up at the airport from a recruiting trip at this time. If you can't accomplish those trivial tasks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow you to break down my film. I'm going to allow you to coach my guys. I'm, I'm, you know, if you're an offensive line coach and you've got a GA who's an offensive line GA, a lot of times if he's a good GA, the coach might take the guards and centers and give the tackles to the GA. But is he doing that if you can't get my scouting reports copied on time? If you can't uh, uh, pick, you know, hey, I need this done. I can't get it. I need you to go pick this up. And then, hey, did you do this? And then and then you want to know why they're, hey, coach, I don't understand. It's, it's the, my, I, you know, now you can call it the Miyagi-Do effect, right? And I believe in Miyagi-Do. 
But I also tell you, to, and then we can go on to, at the end. So for all, all those interns who wound up cleaning my shaker bottles the most during those internships, just know you were the most trusted. Because everybody usually gets a shot, and the one who's cleaning it daily is the one I trusted the most. Yeah, for sure. But again, I don't, you can't do that. Man. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> and I there's a lot, there's a lot of things you can't do now, whether it's that or things you did with the athletes. Yep, for sure. And and I've actually talked to a couple of your former staff and Isaiah Gonzalez and Adam Fight. I talked to Adam Fight this weekend <laughs> on here, and it didn't go beyond. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go beyond them because they always said. They've had that story, and they're always like, "Look, if you can't trust me to clean up a workout, then how can you trust me with the athletes?" So, and, and again, I mean, and and you know, again, uh, especially like with Adam now, with his with his background in the mental performance and where he's gone with his PhD, I, I'd be real interested to see from a psychology standpoint how that fit in the psyche of the development of young interns. No doubt, and, yeah. And what happened now? But again, a, a lot of it too is at some point you hope it pisses them off, mm-hmm. right? You know, like Ice, I mean, Ice is killing it right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's killing it. And I'm not Day saying time. he's killing it because of the trivial stuff we did. The guy had a work ethic. He worked hard. It's funny. I just saw a picture of him. I got to find it. I was going through some old stuff for a presentation and had a clip of him doing vertical jumps at Louisville. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've I, I, Given uh, the entire interns up downs during a football workout in the middle of the county fair circuit, because one of the kids was teaching the drill wrong, and I was getting mad at the athletes, and then I finally said, "Hey, what's going on here?" And and the the coach wasn't paying attention to my assistants teaching the drills, and they were doing it wrong because the coach taught it wrong. Well, got to pay the price. Mm. No doubt. Again, yeah. can't live in that world anymore. But that's that's the things that you do. And if you don't evolve with the different generations and the way things change from societal uh, recognition, for the lack of a better term, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Definitely. And you know, going off that, coach, like, how do we go about instilling that? Because you know, I've, we've all had similar stories. At least coaches that at least my age or older. Like, how do we go about creating quality coaches that aren't soft without towing that line of getting our butts fired? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I will always champion the person in this day and age when people use the terms like, oh, he's soft, they're not tough. You know, the, all this coach speak stuff that's really, uh, that's a, like I said, another time for that. It, you, we have to remember, society is why people are the way they are. The societal changes, uh, environmental aspects. Uh, you know, I was just talking last night with the PE director of the entire Winston-Salem Forsyth County Schools, and, and we were talking about free play. And, you know, your parents nowadays aren't letting their kids run the streets. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in, hey, man, go out. I don't want to see you till dinner. Go find your friends. Go play, and a lot of it, and I get it, it's changed, right? I'm scared for my grandkids when they're outside. Uh, when, when I lived in Arizona, my wife, we bought a house across from a park on purpose 
so that my front door could always stay open and my wife could see the kids at the park. So a lot, a lot of things have changed. So I don't, I don't think it's a, I think it's just the way it's grown. I, I will say this, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to the strength coaches of this era. That's why I think you see a difference of strength coaches who are fallen into this profession without a lot of sporting background in their own, in their own repertoire. It's at a, I never thought strength and conditioning would evolve to the point or whatever we want to call it, sports performance, you know, uh, whatever it's athletic performance, athletic development, where this many students have some type of passion or want to, to be strength and conditioning coach for college athletics. Remember, it all started based off you being an athlete and wanting to coach. And oh, you like the weight room. Let's go throw you in the weight room. And now it's it's at an all-time high. And but what are you seeing? You're now seeing those types of academics without the without the incredible amount of college or high school sports background. They found their niche now, most of them in sports science. And then some of the smarter strength coaches that are in that crossroad period of what we're doing felt like it might be better for them to cross over. And I think that the, the narrative that I think we're going to see now is the person who started as a strength coach and crossed over to sports science will always have an avenue back to strength and conditioning. The, the individual who starts at sports science but may want to get into strength and conditioning would have a, tough, a tougher crossroads. So those are things you have to understand coming up. Watch the path that it evolves. Like I, I coached with a gentleman that worked with me at Arizona State and also worked at Athlete Performance, and he was under Dave Ellis at Nebraska. His name's James Harris, who I believe he's with the Cleveland Indians baseball organization. But he climbed the ladder of success, but he was smart enough to know if he wanted to be a – nutritionist for a football team he had to understand what they went through and he actually interned with us as a strength coach on his climb to be a top flight nutrition in college athletics then he got into administration got a was spent a few years in the nfl and now he's with professional baseball and that that's see that's the difference now of the strength and conditioning individual and that's why I say our voices are changing. And when we we were coming up, we had we would have known had to known all that. But now that there's specific positions being hired, like I said, nutrition, the GPS, and the data, we all we all had to do that. You know, sports science. I mean, what does that mean, sports science? You know, what is, what is you know again, coach speak. It's just uh, I learned this from Pat Ivy, and the more and more I look at certain terminologies that we use is a lot of what coaches use and they throw out these single-minded terms like mental toughness, culture, is really a summation of values and, and terms that fit a certain model of what their expectations are. That's why when you ask a coach, oh man, this what you know we got to get tougher. Well, what does that mean? Uh you know, work hard, grind, you know, all these fake words. Well, that means we got to work hard and grind. 
you know, I mean, showing up at 5.30 in the morning doesn't make you tougher. You show up at 5.30 because if you don't, you're going to lose your scholarship. You know, so you have you have to be aware of that. And it's a, it's an interesting concept because the the human communication interaction will never go away. No matter how much technology comes into play and how much, like Peter said, it's getting more efficient every time. I was one of the first schools who had 24 Tendo units. You know, that's uh, time consuming. And we didn't collect data because we didn't have enough time to collect it. So we were just going off. So the randomness of what we were doing was, oh, well, let's have Tendo's. And we had it before anybody else, and we were recording what we wanted to, not recording. We were evaluating what we wanted to, but we weren't recording it, so we don't have any any uh, in-house data to see if we were doing what was right. And that's where, you know, how everything's evolved, and we see people like Dr. Brian Mann taking things to the next level when it comes to velocity-based training. But, but again... Brian was fortunate that he was a power lifter. He was into the West Side stuff. They introduced Tendo. He got caught up to it. Because remember, when, when velocity-based training first entered college athletics, it was only for dynamic effort or speed strength or strength speed, depending on how you define certain things in the force velocity curve. But then he started, people started looking at it about with max effort lift. Like when does a when is a point to cut somebody off when you're maxing so you can reduce the chance of injury in a testing in the weight room setting. I think there's value in that. I think more people are doing a better job of not just collecting data, but evaluating and interpreting the data. And I don't, obviously based off what we know now, no one's doing it better than Alabama with coach Ballou and and, uh, Dr. Ray, who I have a personal relationship from, way back and we were so ahead of some of the things we were doing we were so ahead of the curve at Arizona State it would have been amazing if we were smart enough then to track all I mean I have data but if we tracked it like they're tracking stuff now it would have been really really cool and Matt and I have spoken about some of the things that we were doing imagine if we would have tracked that what that would have looked like so it's it's ever evolving and again I don't I want to be able to help anybody, whether you are the sports science, whether you are the traditional strength coach, but the traditional strength coach as a whole, you need to still have something behind you. That's why I like with Peter, I like, you know, go, go meet up with those football guys so you can learn GPS, uh, you know, go uh, get your nutrition cert. You know, he's already uh, bought the text for, from the NSCA on the sports science stuff. So when that when that certification comes out, you know, I, I'm going to buy the book. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever get back into coaching, but I I may need to know that stuff if I get into administration down the road. You know, if, so, if, if those types of opportunities or where I'm mentoring or doing a consult with an athletic department, I'm going to need to know more than what I know. I learned a tremendous amount from our 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 GPS and sports science coach at the Panthers, he did a tremendous job of teaching himself and then going the next level. So I feel like I have a little, I have a strong, I have a strong enough 
concept of what the value of the GPS and some of the metrics brings. But in my role, I'll never have to be the expert in that. I'm all in this era. I'll always hire that person. And I and I've always told uh, people I've learned this through numerous mentors and just listening to people in the hiring process. Never hire yourself. You already have that person. You have to hire a personality differences throughout your staff because that helps you be successful with athletes that you yourself may not be able to mesh with right away. And when that occurs, you need to have someone in your staff that can be that person's mentor. Mm. Well, these are these are things that you, and especially when you're having a multi-sport program like yourself and if you have assistance, certain personalities are going to fit with certain athletic sports differently. No doubt. And that's another good thing about, mm. you know, working with many sports. You learn to change your hats, you know, and it's hard. Like I said, when you're dealing with, with teams where their coaches are all in on strength and conditioning, and I'm sure you've seen it in your role, it's a lot easier to go out there for that hour than it is when that team comes in and you know that coach could care less if his team showed up. Right, right. That, that's tough. And that's where and that's where you as the strength coach have to coach them both the same. Mm. Yep. <laughs> because especially, and maybe even coach the, the team who doesn't care harder to at least get them to understand the positiveness of what you're trying to bring to the table for them. And not just in their sport, but in just general life habits. Yep. No doubt. And shout out Matt Ray. I, I was actually a student of his at uh, AT Still University. And I remember I had an assignment about programming and I was looking for a tier system because I was writing it about you. And I was like, you know, Professor Ray, like, where's the tier system? And you are Coach Ken's go-to science guy. And I'm trying to find like scholarly articles on, on, on the tier system so I can write about <laughs> it. He's like, go do, go look up undulating periodization. And I was like, got you. I, I appreciate that coach. But, <laughs> but uh, that's how we met because he published an article on undulating periodization. And that's when the whole conjugate phenomenon. And, you know, it's again, it's, it's called, I call it the open, how do you open a door? And, and, and it goes back to just my, wanting to be a mentor and wanting to be a leader. I, I don't say that with arrogance. I just, I've always had that in me innately. Uh, we don't have a lot of innate leaders anymore because we're coach led, not peer led. So we're coach fed. Everything is fed by a coach and we don't have that opportunity to watch people grow as leaders because we're telling everybody what to do. And that's disappointing in its own right. But Matt had written an article, and I didn't know who Matt Ray was. I just saw that it was published through a bunch of people from Arizona State, and we had just started speaking on conjugate training so when that first broke. And I had been doing Louis stuff since mid-'90s, when my first, uh, second year, first and second, a little bit into my first, but probably 95, 96 was when I was really – figuring out how it fit into the tier system. And by the time we got to Arizona State, we were doing some extremely cool stuff. We were overzealous with some of the max effort and the bands, and our guys weren't prepared for certain things. We learned a lot. And that's why I know the slow cooking process works, and we pulled that at Louisville. But, yeah, Matt was doing that, and I, I called him out of the blue, sent him an email. And when he showed up, I'll be honest with you, I thought it was going to be an older, I thought it was going to be an older person. 
Uh, and he was, and he was actually, that was part of what he was doing for his PhD dissertation. So he wasn't even, I don't even, I don't think he was a full fledged PhD at that point. We got talking about training and he's like, Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. And I was like, we'll come back and watch his train. And, you know, he watched a series of what we were doing. It did exactly what I said it would. And he was like, oh, you're 10 years ahead of the research. And I was like, well, that's why I don't read the research. And that's when I was in my arrogance of like, I'm the research. Like, uh, I don't need to read a hundred review of literature. I live in the now. And uh, I, I don't want to mess up the quote because I'm using it in a couple of presentations. But Brad DeWeese had posted something on Twitter about non uh, organizational data, non-published organizational data does have merit. And we need to remember that as strength coaches that value the information that you are that you are categorizing because regardless of the fact that it may not be published, it's still quality data in the real life world of what we do. Definitely. And Peter, you said you've been working you know, with volleyball and and uh and we'll go this a little in this a little bit later, but I've been like following your dad. It's basically the publication of his book. But um, you know, the tier system wasn't a football setup program. It was when you were at Boise State working with what was women's basketball and volleyball? Yeah, the first two sports to ever use it were women's basketball and volleyball. And then as I uh then gymnastics jumped aboard, tennis, uh, golf, and then the, the actually the last sport that came aboard was track and field. And when that occurred, when I got the sign off from Coach Ed Jacoby, I knew I'd made it. Like uh, because Ed was a high level, world class jump coach. He had, was the head coach of the USA World Team in I think '92, and had coached some of the best jumpers uh we had several olympians from bahamas that ed coached and brought over to boise state so when i first got there we ed wrote the track and field program for all the events and i implemented it for him and then when ed stepped down for a year he said he was going to retire his assistant took over and obviously his assistant had no background in strength and conditioning so I wrote all the programs. After a year, the, the assistant decided he didn't want to be a head coach. Ed came back, and when I met with Ed, and the assistant's name was Randy, Ed sat me down and said, when I, when I took the job back, I asked Randy, what should I do differently that I didn't do the last time I was here? And Randy said, have house write the strength programs for you. So at that point in time, I had already written the strength coaches playbook for my staff. So I handed him this book and he came back two days later. He goes, you wrote all this? I said, yes, sir. He goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then he taught me about, uh, you know, specific movements and how they fit into and why he implemented them with track and field. And we had a long discussion about quarter squat, half squat, full squat stuff, because back then I was full range of motion. And those guys did a lot of quarter squat stuff. And as 
as Matt Ray and I found out, more so Matt, when we published that article in uh, Human Movement, that there's merit in doing different variations of squats at different points in time. And we had some very good discussions. And Ed was all, when Ed saw me take over the football program and I'd go out there and do some stupid plyo exercise I had read in a book and had no clue why we were doing it. He'd pull me in the office and read me out and that's stupid. <laughs> Don't do that with football players. And I like, coach, tell me what I should do and I'll do what you tell me. And that's when I learned meet with track coaches. And when I went to Arizona State, once we got settled in, one of the first groups we met with was Greg Kraft and his staff and learned about track and field and different things we could bring to the to, to the football program at that time. And then when we took over the entire program, uh, you know, Ben Hilgert, who's now at Virginia Tech, he won three national, two national titles, three national titles with track and field. And they utilized the tier system throughout and uh, they did a variation of the tier system even with the throwers with coach Dumbo the throw coach because uh, coach Kraft was adamant all the staff read my book and when Dave took over the throwers coach Kraft got him certified so we did it right and uh, that's why I have a lot of respect for Olympic coaches because they're why I'm here like uh, you, you see the guy who spent his last 11 years in coaching, just doing football, but I'm not here without June Doherty, the women's basketball coach at Boise State. She was my first, like, true champion and challenger. She's the reason that this system even was a concept to think about uh, with, with, the, with the hidden challenges that she gave me in, in team meetings with her, her staff, and the athletic trainer at the time, Tammy Pascoe, and and June coached with her husband her entire career, who was, and both of them were tremendous basketball players in their own right at Ohio State. So it, it's just funny how things go down, right? Like everybody has a story. Uh, my story is going to end as a hot shot NFL football guy. But the truth is the best part of the journey was those first two years as a GA working and developing a plan that – you know, who would have ever thought it would be worldwide? You know, when you talk to people overseas, and especially at the NSCA Nationals, and people from other countries come up and say, I have the book, we're using the tier system with our national team. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't write, I didn't, I didn't write the book for money. And I didn't write the book for fame. I wrote the program because I wanted my athletes to be successful. Mm. No, that that's great. Now you could tell that the intentions there. Now, now, Peter, having heard your, your 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 dad talk about how it basically started on the Olympic sport, you know, how do you have you applied? Do you apply the tier system with your teams, or I'm just I guess that's kind of just straight calling you out. Like, what do you what are you doing with your teams? Okay. No worries. Um, so I'm not in charge of one team directly. I work in every session with the Olympic director of strength conditioning here. Coach Tim Nebraska, as I mentioned previously. However, within those sessions under the model he utilizes, um, I've been given a lot of leeway and been fortunate to lead in, in a couple of different scenarios as well as been free to coach on the floor as it takes place. So I have been given a couple tasks on writing programs as part of my structure as an intern and things of that nature. 
of which I had utilized the tier system for those examples uh, and what I would plan to practice if it was up to me. However, we do have a really good model here um, in terms of what we're doing with athletes. And it's funny, a lot of the things I've seen over the years that aren't necessarily called tier system have a lot of those same methodologies put into place. Um, I know when I was an athlete at Appalachian State and I had a bit of a different experience there in terms of training over my five years, but I'd be like, Hey, this is, this is pretty similar to tier system. We're like, well, it's not. And it's like, it kind of is though. Like it, it's very similar. There are some organizational patterns that vary, but I think the tier system has become one of those things that is evolving on its own. And some, some different training methodologies, whether it's concurrent, whatever it may be, have taken some, um, artistic liberties or freedom, even though they may have been around before or prior, whatever it may be, and, and incorporated a lot of those different um, ideas and management systems of how to train athletically. So we don't necessarily use a tier system here, but there's a lot of remnants of what I would consider traditional tier system-based stuff happening here. Um, and, and then in terms of my experience, other, other places I've seen you know, a, a traditional total lower upper setup, but it never changes or rotates on that scale of that TLU, LUT, you know, E or UTL kind of setup Monday, Wednesday, Friday, depending on what your situation is. But I've seen total lower upper every day of the week, every single block of every single period. And, you know, in my personal opinion, I wanted to try and do a couple things with my own training, uh, seeing on how the breakdown of the tier system worked in terms of week long tiers, if you will, where for one week you're doing total lower upper and then the next week you're doing lower upper total. And then the next week you're doing upper total lower in a fashion that creates somewhat of a three week mesocycle, right? But it's different in the emphasis per week instead of per day. And I think there's a lot of cool things you can play around with with the tier system that haven't necessarily been explored, at least to my knowledge. But I think it branches out in a lot of different areas. We don't necessarily explicitly use what would be considered a tier system here, but there are some components that I find very similar. And how far along into your career, Peter, did you realize like your dad like wrote that book? Because I know you probably knew like, oh, my dad's a strength co- strength conditioning right. coach. But like what part of your career did you realize like, oh, shoot, like. Uh, probably this, around this is my dad stuff. I would say around eighth grade when sports okay, became nice. less of, I don't want to say enjoyable, but I switched to the business side of how I look at sports pretty early on. I wouldn't say it was eighth grade exactly. I mean, that's when I started to realize, okay, this is big time just because of where we were going. Um, obviously, the people you're around, you're going to a bowl game and he's having talks with the strength coach from a different university for three hours while you're chilling in the hotel lobby right? You start to understand certain situations like that, where it starts to become a realization, but definitely partway through high school. Um, I would say, you know, obviously the Carolina Panthers move was a huge one in what went down, but I mean, from the time really that I can remember growing up in a weight room and seeing where we were at and the things we got to do, I always thought it was big time regardless of where we were at. And in terms of national recognition, probably high school, when I probably, I think I went to my first NSCA conference, not as a member or anything, but, you know, tagging along and you see your dad speaking on stage and you're like, okay, this is different than what you may have thought it was. But 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I would say definitely realize, realizing in eighth grade, con- confirming it in high school at some point. Nice, nice. Yeah, and you know, Peter, you you're you're an intern, but you have a lot of experience. Like you have more experience than I'd say the average intern. I think the only other reason is you're you're not a full time coach right now. It's sure. just because you just finished being an yeah. athlete, and and that says I think that says a lot of, about your test bit. But what would be your advice? to a younger coach, let's say they're in their first internship or they're, in, you know, they're in, they're maybe transitioning out of the first internship to a GA. What, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, I think it all plays down to, and this is a big thing for me is your efficiency, your patience in what your craft is going to be. As my dad says, developing your tool belt, it's not always going to come instantly, but you have to slowly add tools to the belt as you go. Uh, I think patience is a major key in one waiting for your opportunity, but when the door opens, you have to, you have to stay in the door. That's the phrase I've been using a lot lately. It's lately. It's, it's one thing to get inside. It's another thing to stay inside and you have to put yourself in the right position. You have to be confident in every decision you make. And hopefully the guy or woman that you're working for will not call you out for it on the floor. I've been fortunate enough to work with people where if a mistake is made, as long as I made sure it was a confident mistake, we'd have that discussion behind closed doors. And it's not just an interview between them to you. You got to interview the person that you're working for, the program that you're going to be a part of and make sure that you're the right fit because you don't want to go somewhere and be miserable for two years. You just don't. I've, I've been miserable in a spot for two years, not coaching wise, but athletically in some regards where you lose interest very quickly. And I think if you have any doubts about being in this profession, not saying it can't change, but you might want to evaluate where you're expecting your career to go. Because if you have doubts about becoming a strength conditioning coach, you probably don't love it as much as you think you do. And if you don't love it, it's not going to be something that's fulfilling for you early on in your career, especially with the way salaries are at the moment. Um, Patience in terms of the salaries and, and the opportunities you get. And then, I would say lastly is I think you really have to have a dynamic brain between your ears, which is tough for some people to kind of adapt into. But if you're not dynamic in understanding the the situation and what it is, all the business decisions that go into it, that you're not just another person, even though that's what someone might call you, you're there for a specific reason, reason, you have a niche within the program, and you have to execute it perfectly. I've been hyper aware of the business decisions that go on even as an athlete. I know what my role was coming to Iowa State. It was a business transaction. They invested a small amount in me for what was hopefully going to be a larger turn. It wasn't necessarily the season I had expected or hoped for, There were some bumps in that road. I got COVID two weeks before conference, not as an excuse, but just as something that happened. And I should have done better, and I didn't. But it was a business decision between between both ends. And what I was accepting is my form of payment as a student athlete under whatever percentage scholarship I was on and what I was supposed to return. And I look at it the same way as an intern or a GA. It's not just you giving time for free to an athletic program, or even if you're on some kind of stipend as a GA, they're also investing their time in you. So understand the business transaction between you and the coach that you're under or that is supervising over you, that they have gone out on a limb to believe in you, even on the smallest extent, or else you wouldn't be there. 
and that their investment of time should be proof of concept to yourself to help build your confidence as well as pay back the opportunity that you were given. And I think that's a good way to look at it um, for everyone is that you give me an opportunity, but I got to pay you back for the opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Play. Play is a company that I've personally been working with from the start. Everyone at Play works to help strength coaches innovate and find solutions for our profession. From flooring, weight room equipment, outdoor spaces, and everything in between, Play will collaborate with you to find what you need. They work with everyone from professional teams to high schools, and they've always made me feel important and a part of the Play family. Refuse second best with Play. Find them at play.us and let them know Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0 sent you. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you to our great guests for taking the time to share their experiences. Thank you to Play and Team Builder for being great companies that help our profession. And most importantly, thank you, the listeners. Please find us on social media at Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0. Find our show notes on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave us a rating, comment, and subscribe. And don't forget to say hi. It's great to hear from coaches from around the country. Talk to you all next week on another episode of Iron Game Chalk Talk 2.0.